Well, good afternoon. It is uh, really great to be here. It's been far too long since I last did this. I hope I can remember how to do it. Um, I can say this now that Rich is not here, how appreciative I've been of his help. Uh, Many of you know that I've been um, taken up with uh, some work uh, issues. And I've been so, so grateful to have Richard here. He has been... Uh, an amazing friend in a way and I'm, I'm so grateful that he's been able to help me here it's not that long ago that there was no one here who could do that sort of help and it's been an absolute boon and a blessing to have him uh, doing, doing what he's been doing I think he's enjoyed it as well which is a bonus um, it's, I think it's been two months since I've uh, preached so I'm really looking forward this is two months of pent up kind of non-preaching so uh, hopefully I can be gentle and we can enjoy it together. I want to start this afternoon with a true story. And, um, and it's a personal story. When I was 18, a long, 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 long time ago, because as we know, people over 40 are very old. I haven't forgotten that. <clears throat> when I was 18, I got a job with what was then British Coal as a trainee mechanical engineer. And it did involve a little bit of travelling because British Coal back then had places all over the country where you had to go and do different parts of training. So I had to pass my driving test, which I did. Um, And my parents, who weren't particularly wealthy, surprised me. I didn't ask for this, but they scraped together what money they could and they very kindly bought me an old second-hand car. And I came home one weekend and they said, we've got a little car for you to be able to use for your travelling. One of the first trips I made was up to Newcastle. So in those days, I lived in Wigan. So you would go up the M6 and then across the country um, to to Newcastle. There were 40 other trainees going to this training course. And as you can imagine, I was very, very excited to be going on this course. I was working and the whole future ahead of me seemed very bright it felt exhilarating to be driving as it does when you first pass your test Ben can testify to that having passed this test recently and to be driving up the fast lane of the M6 motorway on your way to this course it was brilliant and then disaster struck fast lane of the motorway in this car that my parents had bought And as I'm driving along, the bonnet came adrift from its fastenings and from the struts that went across and the thin metal sheet of the bonnet went and covered the windscreen. Completely covered the windscreen. Fast lane of the motorway. Couldn't see a thing. Exhilarated one second desperately trying to work out what to do next, the next second. Thankfully, as I looked over my shoulder, there was a lorry driver in the middle lane who saw what had happened. And it was all a bit of a blur, but I think the combination of winding the window down, looking out the window, and him slowing down and guiding me across the hard shoulder meant that I made it to the hard shoulder safely. I think that experience is something like 
what these early Christians in Acts faced. They are effectively firing along the motorway in the fast lane. It is enormously exhilarating to see God's mission explode into life where they live. Their foot is on the accelerator. They're making rapid progress. And then suddenly, (coughs) the bonnet's up over the windscreen. So, this is my title for today. What do you do? I haven't got a clicker here, so... um, This is the most unusual title for a sermon I think I've ever come up with. What do you do when your bonnet covers your windscreen? If you were here last week, you'll know the story of Peter and John, two of the leaders in the early church who were just doing kindness. And the authorities, because they were jealous and frightened, threw them into prison overnight and then threatened them with legal action if they didn't be silent. We've entitled this series Mission Unstoppable, but how is it unstoppable? And what do you do when the wheel comes off? The mission that we're talking about here is, of course, God's mission in this world. God prepared in history to send his son, Jesus, into the world Not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Through his life, his death and his resurrection. Afterwards, Jesus then sends his disciples into that same world, into this broken world, to tell people that God doesn't hate them, but that he loves them and wants to welcome them into his family. What could be a greater message of good news than that? It's a challenge for us though, it's not an easy message to hear, because this message points out first of all that in a sense we're not what we were meant to be. From God's perspective, we're guilty, we've ignored him, we haven't lived to please him, we've been selfish, and it's hard for us to hear that we need saving by God from our own sinfulness, isn't it? But when we do hear that and accept it and begin to come to terms with it, the amazing good news is that our loving Father God in heaven has sent his Son to save sinners like you and me. He hasn't abandoned us, but he longs to welcome us into his family. If God was a doctor, his diagnosis would be that we are very sick, but that he has a cure And the cure is Jesus, his incomparable son, who died the death we deserve and rose from the dead to guarantee eternal life to every single person who believes in him. This is a great mission, isn't it? This is God's mission in the world. It is a great and a good and an excellent mission. It's a life-saving mission. It's a heartwarming mission. It is a mission that makes people friends with God when they were his enemies before. It is a mission that changes people's destiny from being on a road to hell to being on a road to be part of God's new creation. This is a mission that changes lives, it changes communities, 
wherever this mission of God prospers, it brings life and light and joy and peace and hope and generosity and happiness and power. And I could go on all afternoon. Selfishness is overcome. The light drives the darkness away. True togetherness becomes possible wherever God's mission prospers. The book of Acts, as we've seen, is the story of this mission exploding into life. Thousands of people come to faith in Jesus. They discover a new love for God. They discover a new love for one another. They're beginning to love each other like families should. But over the last couple of weeks, Rich has been showing us how this great and good mission almost comes off the rails. It hits the buffers. It feels like they hit a brick wall. It's like they all need their seatbelts on because they're on the fast lane of the motorway and suddenly the bonnet comes up over the windscreen. They were making rapid progress and suddenly they find that their leaders are in jail. So God's mission faces opposition. But this is no ordinary mission. This is a critical moment for God's people. But these are not just random people trying their best. They are God's people. There's a few things in Acts that happen that threaten God's mission. Uh, We haven't deliberately left Jai the hardest chapter in Acts for next week. But um, it's just the way it's fallen. The, The early church, in the fast lane of the motorway, they experienced external persecution. We're going to think about that. They experienced internal hypocrisy. Jai's going to cover that a little next time. But then as the church began to grow, people started to fall out and they had to get organised and work out their priorities and work out what really mattered and what didn't really matter. All of these things threatened the life of God's people and their mission. But here their problem is coming from the outside. The issue is that there are people who are bullying them into silence. Now, no one likes a bully, do they? I remember at primary school being frightened of one older boy who just seemed to know how to make me scared. Sometimes looking back, I wonder whether I should have just smacked him. (laughs) I, I, I wouldn't say that to my own kids, obviously. But he just seemed to know how to make me frightened. And I I would actually walk to school by a different route to avoid this boy. I would try not to be alone so that he couldn't corner me. And Rich showed us last week that certain sections of the religious ruling classes were behaving like bullies. It wasn't illegal to do what Peter and John had done. They'd healed a crippled man. What could be more kind and amazing than that? But the problem for these bullies was they didn't mind Peter and John doing kind things. What they didn't like was connecting the kind things they were doing to Jesus. That was the issue. We don't mind what you do. Just don't talk about him because we hate him. We've just crucified him and you keep bringing him up again. All the time, banging on about Jesus and the fact he's risen from the dead. If you don't shut up, you'll be for it. Okay? That was what Peter and John faced. These are ordinary men from the north come into the capital and the highest court in the land, sit in a semicircle and threaten these guys, shut it or else. 
That is trying to bully them into silence, isn't it? You talk about Jesus anymore and it will be curtains for you. You preach this gospel you've been banging on about and we will throw the book at you. We will come down and you so hard you won't know what's hit you. So their bonnet on the windscreen moment is that the authorities are trying to frighten them into keeping quiet. So, if it, it, just to change the metaphor, in the red corner, we have God's great and excellent and good mission to save people. And in the blue corner, we have the bullies who say, shut up about Jesus or else. What on earth are these early Christians going to do with that? What do you do? How did they respond? Where did they go? Well, I don't think they're particularly complicated. And as I've been thinking about this little section in the Bible this week, here's what I think they did. And I think there's a slide that will come up with this on. When a wheel falls off, what they need, they, they need their friends and they need God. It's no more complicated than that. They need their friends and they need God. Is that too simple? In a nutshell, what happens is that they unite together as a Christian family and cry out to their Father God to help them to keep their foot on the accelerator and fulfill the mission that he's given them in spite of the opposition that was coming their way. Acts chapter 4 verse 23 on their release Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them when they heard this they raised their voices together in prayer to God Sovereign Lord they need their friends and they need God let's talk first of all about the friends part and then I want to focus on the prayer that they pray which is the God part okay so here's the friends bit first when you're in difficulties you need your friends I just want to say three things about that first of all I want you to notice that the inclination of Peter and John's heart was that they wanted to be with their Christian family. We can easily just pass over that. Like, you know, have you ever seen a compass and the needle always points to north? You can shake it up, but then when it settles down, it always points to north. Like a compass needle, the hearts of Peter and John just long to be with their Christian brothers and sisters. I love the little phrase, on their release, Peter and John went for a holiday because they were really fed up. No. On their release, Peter and John felt they needed a few days off, so they went home and put their feet up for a bit because it had been a hard night being in prison overnight after all. On their, what, what does it say? On their release, Peter and John went back to their friends. 
There was a time when they would have gone home if they could have gone home, but they couldn't because they were in shackles in the jail overnight. But as soon as they were free, as soon as they could move freely, what did they do? They wanted to be with their Christian family because this is where their friends are. This is where they'll find sympathy, comfort. This is where they feel safe and secure and loved and accepted. Perhaps one question we could ask is, where do you go? Or where would you go if you were free? When all the constraints and restraints are taken away, if time and money and health and everything else was not an obstacle, what is the magnetic north that the needle of your heart would move towards if there were no obstacles? For these men, like a magnet, they were just attracted naturally to their Christian family. Secondly, I want to suggest to you that there is something very special and unique about Christian friendship. There's a lovely sense of distinction here. On their release, Peter and John went back where? To their own people. That's not insignificant. They went back to their own people. It's not an exclusive and like clicky thing because as we've seen, the whole mission of God is about adding people into his family so that it will grow. So anyone who wants to come is welcome. But there's a difference here between the world and the Christian family. Peter and John went back to their own people. In a sense, the court of the Sanhedrin, that's not their home. I would suggest to you that in a sense, this world actually is not truly their home. Their home is where the followers of Jesus are. And in the end, this is what makes a church a church, isn't it? The friendship that arises out of a shared love for Jesus. Is that not what makes a church? You can sign your name on a membership role. You could be born in a particular area and that maybe makes you part of that parish or whatever. But the thing that really makes a church a church is the friendship that arises from a shared love for Jesus. Something's happened to these people and somehow they've become unplugged from the world and plugged in to a new community that is marked by its loyalty to Jesus and the fullness of God's spirit being with them. I want to say to you, whatever we are as a church, however organised or disorganised we are, however large or small we are, perhaps the most important question we can ask is, are we friends? <laughs> it's not any more complicated than that, is it? Are we friends? Is this a friendly church? Do you long to belong? Do you love this world or do you love Jesus and his people? Well, Peter and John, it's clear. Thirdly, very quickly, I want to um, highlight the fact that this could have been so different. How beautifully supportive this group is to their leaders who are in trouble. 
Peter and John could have come in after being in jail overnight and been threatened with legal action and there could have been stony silence. Just imagine the church members meeting. Peter and John come back in and some guy at the back with his arms folded stands up and says, What on earth are you praying at? What are you rocking the boat for? You're going to get us all killed. Wind your necks back in. Are you mad? None of that. They went back to their own people. They reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voice together in prayer. This is like backs to the wall togetherness, isn't it? Come on in. Poor you. Come and have a cup of tea. Sit down. Tell us all about it. How awful it must have been. They report all that had happened. They've been in jail overnight. They faced the highest court in the land. They've been threatened with serious legal action. What Luke portrays here is like a mutual love and encouragement. These people love their leaders. They love one another. What a great blessing it is when a leader can look forward to being with Christians because he knows his friends are there. It's not true for all leaders. Thank God it's true here. It's not true for all leaders. Some leaders go to their churches and they know their people hate them. (laughs) Imagine that. Preaching the gospel to people who just really hate you. These people, there's love here. This is family, isn't it? What a great thing. Someone said to me only yesterday that the thing they liked about our church was the fact that it was homely. I'm in the middle of preparing this when I heard that, and I'm like, yeah, that is a great thing about our church. It's freezing because the heating's broken down, but it's, it's kind of, there's a homeliness, a friendliness. I love that. And long may it continue. So, when, you, when you're in trouble, you need your friends. And those of you who are Christians, you need your Christian friends because there's something special and unique about that. Let's turn now to the fact that the substance of their response is this united prayer. Um, they turn to one another, and then together they turn to God. Where do you go when difficulties come? Where do you run to? When they heard the report, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. I don't think it means they all prayed at the same time. What Luke is emphasizing here is their togetherness. Maybe someone prayed, and then they all went, Amen to that! Maybe two or three of them prayed. Maybe 20 of them prayed. I don't know. But either way, what Luke is expressing here is that they are completely united. They're together in desperately crying out to their God in heaven for help. When their bonnet covers their windscreen, when their mission seems to hit the buffers, their response to that crisis is to pray. And this prayer is an amazing prayer. I know we've got time to look at it. I want to paraphrase this prayer this way. It's quite down to earth, but I hope you'll be with me in this. Here's the prayer. uh, So you need God. Oh, there's the three points we've just missed. You can check those afterwards. You need God. Oh, hang on, hang on, hang on. So, this prayer is very good logic, okay? 
So I've built it up from the bottom, like if you were building a wall. The first thing they say, so Ben, are you with me? The first thing they say is, oh God, you are the ultimate boss. Number two, they build on that, which means that these bullies can't possibly win. Because if you're the boss, they can't win. See the logic? Thirdly, so in the light of those two truths, will you please help us to carry on doing what we're doing? And then there's a little PS at the end that I've put, cover our back. Okay? So that's the prayer. That's the prayer in a nutshell. Oh God, you're the boss, which means that these bullies can't win, so please help us to carry on. PS, cover our back while we're carrying on. That is really the substance, I think, of this prayer. Does that ring true? The thing that leaps out straight away is their great logic. They don't pray like a drowning person, thrashing about desperately. Their prayers are not just like aimless, random prayers. This is very painful for them. This is very scary for them. But they pray with a cool head, don't they? What do we know about God? Well, we know that God's in charge. And if God's in charge, that means that these bullies, even though they seem quite scary, can't win in the end. Which kind of means that God's mission is unstoppable. So will you please help us, God, to carry on doing what we're doing? You see what they're doing? They build on what they know. Their prayers are saturated with the Bible. They pray well because they know God. Their theology, if you like, is very sound. Can I say this to you? If you you want to pray well when a bonnet hits your windscreen, one of the most important things you can do is to get to know God before the crisis actually happens. Because when the crisis comes, there won't be time to study theology (laughs) because it'll be a crisis. Need to get on the hard shoulder, ASAP. (laughs) If you want to pray well in a crisis, learn to get to know God Now, when the crisis comes, you'll be able to build on that biblical, healthy logic. Secondly, I want to suggest to you, they also don't pray like people who are not sure whether God's listening. This prayer is a prayer from people who have a strong faith. They don't apologize for it. They know God and trust it. This prayer is is prayed with the confidence of a child saying, Daddy, please help me. What child says that, thinking that the daddy will go, get lost? This is a prayer of strong faith. They know that God will hear and answer. Not because they're good, but because God their Father is very great. So, I just want to highlight these four things. We'll start at the bottom. God, you're the boss. What do they pray? If you've got a Bible, it would be really helpful if you can look at this. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said. That word is, um, it's the word that we get our English word despot from. Which is not a good word in English. But back then, it didn't have the negative connotations that it has now. A despot is a a tyrant. But what's implied by the word sovereign Lord is God has no rival. He is the ultimate Lord and no one can knock him off his throne. 
He has no equal. There's no one he's scared of. And there's nothing that he can't handle. He's the sovereign Lord. How do they know that? Well, first of all, they say, they know it because he's the creator. Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and earth and the sky and everything in them. I love that. He, he like, he makes the box and then fills it with stuff. He makes the environment and then populates it. You made the heavens and the earth and the sea and filled them all with good stuff. Why? Because you're the creator. There is not a square inch of this whole massive universe that is outside of his ultimate bossness. He is in charge. He made the whole thing. He's the creator. And he has no rival. The second reason they know he's the boss is because this is a God who speaks personally. Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. God has given us his words. We call it the Bible. This is God's own word. The creator has written us a letter. That means it, is, it has authority and power. Every single one of his promises will come true. Because who can stop him doing what he promises to do? Another thing that's true is that every one of his warnings will come true. We live in a world where there's so many opinions, but in the end, God's analysis on things is the one that we really need, isn't it? Because he knows all things. What he thinks and what he says is the original and not a copy. There's no plagiarism here. God's word is the final word on any subject and you can't improve on it really. What I really wanted to say was that God is not a thing or an it. He's not like a force or a distant energy field. This is a living creator God who is personal. He communicates. He reveals himself. He speaks to us. This is the God of the Bible. A creating and a speaking God. And this is the God who's behind the great mission. And the reason it's mission unstoppable is because there's nothing that can stop God doing whatever he pleases. Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything and you spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, King David. So this is a good prayer to start. This is a good start to a prayer, isn't it? They're remembering who God is. So that's the first thing. God's the ultimate boss, which means the bullies can't win. What I mean by that is that it's futile to try and fight God. How can a creature fight the Creator and win? It's not a fair matchup. It's impossible. But this prayer is amazing, and it's a bit complex. So I'm going to try and. What I want to say is that I think there are three different sets of bullies in this psalm. Um, so see if you can uh, it sounds good in my head I hope it sounds good when it comes out of my mouth the three different bullies here first of all what they do is quote from a psalm in the Old Testament it's Psalm 2 and that psalm was a psalm that the people of God in the Old Testament loved to sing when a new king was crowned it's a coronation psalm now 
if you know anything about um, Israel, uh, what's in my mind's eye is the geography. I should have had a map. Israel was a very rich country in terms of resource, but it was surrounded by other countries. On, on the left-hand side is the Mediterranean Sea. Then you've got Israel, quite a small country, quite rich, right on the smack on the trade routes. And in the north, the east, and the south, they're surrounded by massive countries. The nation of Israel, for most of its life, felt intimidated. We're little, and all the nations around us are always trying to bully us. They're always trying to intimidate us. Now, you imagine you were the new king. And, the, and the, maybe the priests pull out Psalm 2 off the scroll and they read Psalm 2. The whole point of Psalm 2 is to make this new king feel that God is the ultimate boss and not the nations around them. Even though you feel intimidated, God's in charge and the bullies can't win. That's the point of this quote from Psalm 2. Read it. They, they quote it from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why are they always trying to bully us? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and his anointed one, his anointed king. This has been going on for centuries. So the, the one being bullied in that first bit is Israel and they're being bullied by all the big countries around them. Always wanting to like... And this coronation psalm is like their way of saying, you're not in charge, God's in charge. We're going to follow him. I love the fact, if we went back to Psalm 2, we haven't got time. Do you know what it says in Psalm 2 is this. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them, all the bullies. He scoffs at them. Who are you? Who do you think you are? But then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. Can you imagine a powerful... Well, we don't have to imagine. This is God the Creator saying, Who are you? <laughs> and I've... Listen, bullies, I've installed my king on my holy hill. And there's not a thing you can do about it because I'm the boss. I'm the sovereign Lord. And you don't bother me. God is not perturbed in the slightest. And as long as his people are trusting him, they're safe as houses because nobody can knock God off his throne. The bullies can shout and scream and do their worst as fiercely as they like, but they can't win in the end. God just shrugs and says, whatever. I've installed my king, and unless you make peace with him, you lot are losers. That's the point of Psalm 2. And what a great coronation service that would make. The second picture is not of a country though. It's a person. So these early Christians, ordinary Christians who know the Old Testament, where do they go? They go to Psalm 2 because it's about bullies and God being the boss. How do they apply it well, when they read in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why is it that the kings of the earth take their stand and gather together against the Lord and his anointed one? Who do they see that fulfilled in? Israel was bullied in the past, 
But they apply this to Jesus. This is only a few weeks ago. Jesus, the Son of God, comes into the world and Herod and Pilate and the people conspire against Jesus and bully him. There's a big difference though. They didn't just bully him, they killed him. And it looked like the bullies had won. Until God smashed his tomb open and the one they'd crucified and laid in a tomb burst out of it because even death can't conquer him. And he appears to these disciples and says, Guys, I'm not dead. I'm very much alive. Look at what it says in verse 28. The bullies thought they'd won. But in verse 28, in this prayer, they say, they were only doing what you decided before and should happen anyway. It isn't that God made them do it, but God allowed it to happen. It was all part of his plan. Even when the bullies succeed for a time, it's only because God's allowed it to happen so that greater good will result. And in Jesus' case, God raised him from dead, establishes him as the saviour. So the bullies did their best to do away with him. God used it to bring salvation. So God's the boss. The bullies can't win. Even when it looks like they've won, they haven't really won. And the obvious implication is that the third group being bullied are these Christians. So they go to the Old Testament to Israel. They go to Jesus. And then they apply the same things to them. These early Christians are like sheep surrounded by wolves roaring at them. They know they're fragile and weak. They know they have enemies who would crush them if they could. But they also know that nothing can happen unless God allows it to. Because the bullies are not the boss. God is. And even if God allows the bullies to win for a while, he must have a wise reason for that to be the case that will further his purposes in the end. Jesus did say, if the world persecuted me, bear in mind that it will persecute you as well. The way of Christ will always be a way of suffering and cross-bearing. Can you see what these Christians have done there? They don't start their praying with, me, 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 it's all about me, it's all about me, please look at me. They're not looking at themselves. Sometimes our praying, it's just all me, 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 me. Their praying is like, God, 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 you're amazing. That's what we need, isn't it? We don't want to look in the mirror. You look in the mirror for too long, you'll become depressed. What we need is to look outside of ourselves to a God who is amazing and powerful, who can help us and forgive us and bless us and strengthen us. They don't start their praying with wallowing about in meanness. Their hearts soar up to begin with God. They start with what they know about God. Sovereign Lord, they said. You're the great creator. You've given us your word. We know what it means. And we're not frightened of these bullies as fierce as they are because we're your people. 
They're reminding themselves that God is in charge and the bullies are on his very short leash. Thirdly, they pray, help us to carry on. Verse 29, now Lord, will you please smash these bullies to pieces because they're a real pain. Will you rain down fire on them from heaven? Is that what they pray? They did ask that once in the Gospels. They came across some people and they said to Jesus, so we call fire on them. Jesus said, don't be stupid. They could have prayed for vengeance. There's some prayers like this in the Old Testament, actually. Hezekiah, in the book of Isaiah, prays a prayer very like this. Oh God, you're the creator. Our enemies are fierce. Please smash them to smithereens for us. But they don't pray that here. They don't pray for deliverance. What they pray for is enabling. Lord, consider their threats. You know how hard this is. And will you please enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. In other words, help us to carry on doing what you told us to do and help us not to be frightened of these bullies who are trying to silence us. What they're saying to us, to God is, God, fill our hearts with confidence and courage and boldness because we need it. We feel weak. Will you enable us? Isn't that a great prayer? They don't pray so much for themselves. They just want to be faithful. They want to be on mission and not paralyzed by fear. I love the fact that they're not triumphalistic on the one hand or paralyzed on the other hand. Their opposition here is very real and they take nothing for granted, but they realize that it's not ultimate. And I love the fact, this is a great pattern for us, that they are realistic and humble rather than giddy and gung-ho. But it's all laced with just a a sheer determination, with God's help, to press on and move forward. And then they say, P.S., cover our back. I phrase this as cover our back, because we mustn't get mixed up about the miracles here. I don't want to dwell on this, because it's not really the point today. The, The point I wanted to just make very simply is that the miracles are there to authenticate their message, not the other way around. Miracles are not an issue for the Creator, so we can't say miracles can't happen. But they do seem to have occurred at significant moments in history to authenticate new revelation from God. And what I want you to see, really, is that their primary concern is for boldness in preaching and proclaiming and declaring God's Word to people. And for God to cover their backs and authenticate that. Okay, well, we're, we're, we're nearly done. Could, could you say amen to this prayer? Could you? Because God did. I like it when we pray as a church family and people say a loud amen. When when we say Amen, it's a bit of a weird thing, isn't it, to say Amen or Amen. The reason we say that is it's like, Amen is like, I agree with that. (laughs) And that's what I want God to do. What he just said. (laughs) 
Or what she just said. Amen to that. That, that. That's why we say amen. I think in this story, it's like God in heaven goes, Amen! And the building shakes. It's like they pray the prayer and God goes, Amen! It's an amazing prayer. God's involved. And it's like God says, Amen, very loudly. It's like God peels the windscreen back, peels the bonnet off the windscreen, fastens it back down and says, go on then, put your foot down, drive like the wind. This is God involved. This is mission unstoppable. I wouldn't have wanted to have missed this prayer meeting for the world, would you? It's amazing how God brings good out of pressure. The mission hits the wall, runs out of steam, But the opposition binds them all together as friends in this kind of purposeful unity. It stirs their hearts to seek God with enthusiasm. It emboldens their determination to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And in the next passage, which Jai has the privilege of looking at next week, it even overflows in generosity to those who are in need. God's people under fire, coming together, crying out to him for help, This kind of praying is the life of the church. Let us make it our goal to pray together in small groups, big groups, one-to-ones, I don't care. Let us pray believing that God is the ultimate boss and that the bullies can't win and ask him to help us to overcome the fears that would paralyze us and stop us being on his mission. Here's three very quick things to close with. And then we're done. Just two minutes here. First of all, let me say this. Don't ever try to be a lone ranger. You were never designed to be a Christian on your own. If you're like me, sometimes you might feel, oh, I'm not going to go to the prayer meeting because I feel like my faith is really weak today. And I'm so unworthy. I can't do this. I can't do that. The whole point of God's mission is that we are a family. And the the idea is not that we sit at home pulling our socks up and polishing our kind of behaviour so that we can then come to church in a good place. The whole point is that we come as we are, together, to seek God. Do you know something that is true? you will never ever in your life say amen to a prayer that you don't hear. You can't say amen if you don't hear the prayer that's prayed. But what you will find as you do come is that your weak faith, my weak faith, will be strengthened. And what is more, your honesty will inspire other people and you will grow and be strengthened. So don't be a lone ranger. Don't hide in the shadows. Secondly, I want to say, let's get our seatbelts on. To use my analogy, it's not a perfect analogy, are we driving up the fast lane or are we sat in Costa Coffee in the services having a coffee? My final challenge would be that this part of the Bible should speak to us very powerfully because if they could do it, why can't we do it? I haven't just come here today from being in jail overnight. It's not illegal to meet like this. Is it illegal to share your faith with your neighbours? 
We don't face any kind of persecution like this yet. We may do one day, but not yet. So why can't we be busy with our foot on the accelerator, driving down the fast way of the motorway, on mission with Jesus? There's no law against it. So my question is, are we in the services or are we actually making progress? Let's get our seatbelts on. And the third thing, this is the last one now, I want to ask this question, what is bullying you? And I don't necessarily mean people here, like that guy in my primary school. What I mean by that is, what are the things in our lives that would tend to silence or prevent us from living for Jesus wholeheartedly? Is there something in your life that just has you beaten or paralysed? Is there something or some person that has just stunned you into inactivity? Has your bonnet somehow peeled up and covered the windscreen and you're sat on the hard shoulder and out of the game? Well, maybe today's the day that you do business with God and get going again. Oh man.